Hey everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I interview Bradley Tusk, CEO and co-founder of Tusk Ventures. Now, Tusk Ventures is the world's first venture capital firm that invests exclusively in early stage startups in highly regulated industries. Think cannabis, gambling, transportation. And before we talk about Tusk Ventures, it's important to understand how we got there. As the founder and CEO of the consulting firm Tusk Strategies, right? Before he became a VC, he served as the campaign manager for Mike Bloomberg's mayoral race, the deputy governor of Illinois, the comms director for US Senator Chuck Schumer, and most famously, as Uber's first political advisor. And so, in the episode, Bradley and I will discuss why exactly highly regulated is the filter through which his venture firm looks to explore opportunities with early stage startups. In what ways specifically regulation can be used as both as a defensive and offensive lever, helping Andrew Yang in his mayoral race and his request for improvements, New York City edition, the different ways politicians can advocate for climate change and climate progress, his other ventures such as mobile voting, opening up an indie bookstore, his most recent SPAC, the Ivory Gaming Acquisition Corp, which is focused on leisure, gaming, and hospitality. And finally, I'll pitch him a bunch of different ideas upon which he'll give his bullish or bearish take. Y'all, this is one of the most fun conversations we've had in a while. I know I've said that a few times, but truly, Bradley is one of the most clear and original thinkers that we've had on the show. So without further ado, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Bradley Tusk, CEO and co-founder of Tusk Ventures. Bradley, welcome to the show. Peter, thanks for having me. Bradley, before we started, I said I've been doing a bunch of digging. The hardest thing for me before starting here is where to start. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot going on. There's, it's usually any given moment. It's funny when people say to me, how you doing? Like, if I answer the question honestly, the answer is always mixed, right? Because there's so much going on here at the moment that like some things are going really well and some things are, and by definition, because we try to do hard stuff, it's not going to all always be going really well at the same time because then we're not pushing ourselves enough. The reality is there's a lot of different things, but we could talk venture, we could talk politics, we could talk SPACs, we could talk gaming, we could talk media, whatever you want. Cool. So I think... I've been thinking about where to start. I think the the most natural and logical place to start is how you got here, right? You have this long list of of milestones and accomplishments as Bradley Tusk, the strategist. I pulled some quotes. You've been described as Uber's political genius, Silicon Valley's favorite fixer. So maybe to set the stage here, let's yes. brief the listeners on sure. what Tusk strategies is and what laments that uh, venture of yours. It, it, is it helpful if I give my background a little bit to yes. tell the story? Good. Yes, I, that'd be great. So as someone who is, turns out, if you have a venture capital fund, you're always raising money, which means I have to give my bio on some sort of call with LPs constantly. So I'm used to it. <laughs> so anyway, so my background is in government politics. I was Mike Bloomberg's campaign manager when he ran for mayor of New York. I worked for him at City Hall. 
I spent four years as the deputy governor of Illinois, ran the state's budget operations, legislation, policy, and communications. A couple of years in Washington on Capitol Hill as Chuck Schumer's communications director. Started my first company in 2010, Tough Strategies. It's a consulting firm that runs big campaigns. So you're Walmart and you're trying to open up stores in four major downtowns and you've got zoning issues and union issues and community issues. We figure all that out. And pivoting to tech kind of by accident, I was sitting in a meeting in early 2011 and a friend of mine called and said, hey, there's a guy with a small transportation startup. He's having some regulatory problems. Would you mind talking to him? I become Uber's first political advisor that day. I get really lucky when Travis calls me back and says, listen, I can't afford your fee. Would you take equity? I didn't know what equity meant, but for some reason I said yes. That was back during Uber Series A and then spent the next few years while building high strategies, but really focused on legalizing Uber and ride sharing all over the country. And the thing that we figured out was that we could turn our customers into political advocates. And, and by mobilizing them through the app, they would email or tweet or text or do something to let their elected officials know if they wanted this thing called Uber to still exist. And that's how we won. Um, repeated the process with Clear to help to get them into airports. That worked. And then finally hit me that was probably a more sustainable business around tech and regulation. And met my partner, Jordan, who was running Blackstone's internal venture fund at the time, and we asked ourselves the question of, rather than what most funds do are on regulatory risk, which either they pretend it doesn't exist or they run away from it, what if you had a fund that embraced it? And so that was the, the genesis for Touch Ventures. And basically, when we look at a company, it's always the same things that every early stage investor is looking at, the size of the market, the underlying idea, the founder, all, all the usuals. But then we ask ourselves two other questions. One is there a gating regulatory issue or opportunity that if it were solved could really drive growth and valuation? And if so, too, can we solve it? And when the answer to both of those questions is yes, that's when it makes sense for us to deploy capital. So it's investing in FanDuel and then running all the campaigns to legalize daily fantasy sports betting, investing in Roman, legalizing prescription via text, investing in Bird, legalizing scooters, investing in Lemonade, getting their insurance licenses in every state. So things like that. So on the venture side, we're now uh, investing out of Fund 3. So far, so good. And uh, separate from that, as you mentioned, I, I did a SPAC in the fall in the digital gambling space. Can't say specifically what we're doing, but I will say that we have an announcement hopefully coming up in the future. I also am incubating a tele-religion social media platform. So that's we're in beta right now, so that's fun. And then separately, thanks to Uber, I've got my own family foundation. We're funding and running the campaign nationally to make it possible for people to vote on their phone over the blockchain. So we've done that now in 20 different jurisdictions around the U.S., across seven different states, and we're now building our own technology. We also funded run campaigns around hunger. So we pass bills at either our expand school breakfast, school lunch, meals for hungry college students, or for senior citizens. And then separate from that, a few other things. I've hosted a podcast myself called Firewall. It's about tech and politics. I write a column for Fast Company about this stuff. Wrote a book uh, called The Fixer a couple of years ago about tech and politics. I'm writing another one right now. I teach this stuff at Columbia Business School, co-founded the Gotham Book Prize, and then I'm opening <laughs> up a uh, bookstore and podcast studio on the Lower East Side of Manhattan this fall. So a lot of stuff going on. Oh, and we're running Andrew Yang's campaign for mayor. I forgot that part. Yeah. So a lot, a, a lot going on. Some of it's working really well. Some of it is slower than I'd like. But but yeah, as you can see, I have a very short attention span. Uh, okay, Bradley, there are so many ways that I could segue into the next topic here. I would like to start with the last one. You and I are both New York City natives. Yep. And given your... 30,000 foot view on how 
governments and businesses can help manifest meaningful progress. And you and I lived here through COVID. You were helping Andrew Yang run run for mayor. A fun question that I'd like to, to pose for you is, what's your request for improvements, New York City edition? Yeah. So there, there's two different ways to look at that question. So I, because keep in mind, I, I can make that request directly to the candidates and to the next mayor. Uh, and here's why I chose Andrew and, and recruited him into the race, which is um, the thing that made Mike Bloomberg a really good mayor is not that, yes, he happens to be incredibly brilliant, but it, it's not that. It's that he hired his team without regard to politics. He just said, I want the most talented people I can get. I'm going to make them hire the most talented people they can get. And then I'm going to create a culture where people can come up with big ideas, take risks, even fail. And as a result, we're going to do great things. And that's exactly what happened. And what I'm looking for in the next mayor is who can hire without regard to politics, who can attract really great talent, and who can build a culture um, that allows people to do big things. And to me, Yang was the clear choice among those. And that's why I'm supporting him. So if we win, that's how he will hire. If we don't win, it's, it's a tight race. So we'll see where it lands. But to the extent that I'll have any juice with the new mayor, that will be my request of them. So that's big picture. When it comes to the sort of the city's operations and everything else, I think it's it's to return to what the Bloomberg administration believed and the de Blasio administration does not believe, which is the role of city government is to provide a template, a clean, safe, well-run city that then enables people in the private sector, in the artistic community, in the nonprofit sector, in the tech sector to come up with really big ideas and do interesting things. But you've got to give people a city that is clean, that is safe, that is well-run. And if you do that, great things will happen. The de Blasio administration for the last seven and a half years now has really deviated from that view, and they don't really see safety or cleanliness as as their responsibility. And we're seeing quality of life plummet. We're seeing shootings and crime uh, skyrocket. And that's what really drives people away from New York City, drives jobs away from New York City, drives tourists away from New York City. And so I want a mayor that fundamentally gets that and puts the resources. Uh, That's a great answer. Obviously, this pod, we focus on all things climate. And not just the eureka moment. We like the the key through line, which is showing people they can make money by solving climate yeah. in big ways. But a major yeah. puzzle piece in this universe is regulatory, tailwinds, headwinds. And so my question for you, and big thanks to, to Rachel for teeing this up on your team, what do you think politicians can do to advocate for climate and climate progress more specifically? So it, it's, it's, I'm going to flip around. The, this is the problem with, with interviewing a podcast host is I'm now going to flip around your question. Um, <laughs> but because here's the thing. I believe, and this is literally the fundamental view that probably drives most of the work that we do, that 99% of politicians are desperately insecure, self-loathing people that can't live without the validation of holding office. They have a hole in their psyche. It can only be filled by feeling special. And the way that they're able to feel special is by being a politician and being in office. Therefore, they are never, ever going to do anything that is not in their political self-interest at any given moment. And what we constantly do is we expect them to do the right thing. I'm making air quotes, but of course, the listeners can't see me. Um, Even if it's at the expense of their own politics, they don't do it. Let's use guns as an example, and then we'll shift the climate. There's a shooting in a school or a Walmart, something terrible. And for a moment, everyone comes together and we have hopes and prayers and vigils and we should really do something about AK-47. You should be able to just walk into a store and come out with one. And then if you've noticed, the federal assault weapons ban never passes. Why? Let's say you're a Republican congressman in Florida and turn out in your primary is 12%. 
And NRA members make up half of that 12%. Intellectually, rationally, that it's crazy that you can walk in off the street and buy an assault weapon. But you also know that if you vote for that ban, you will lose your next primary because NRA members make up half of your electorate. So fast forward to a world now where turnout, because we're voting on our phones, it's 50% in that primary instead of 12%. The NRA's vote share just went from 50% down to 12%. And as a result, you're going to do whatever you think helps you stay in office, which in this case would be voting for an assault weapons ban, because not shockingly, most people think that it shouldn't be that easy to buy an assault weapon. So fundamentally, we should only expect politicians to do what's in their political self-interest at that moment. So the answer to the question of what can they do on climate change is really what can we do to make solving climate in their political interest? Because if we do that, they will follow and they will do it. If we don't do that, they'll say the right things, um, but they'll never actually do anything hard about it. So if we want to have a carbon tax, if we want to have uh, nuclear energy at scale, if we want to have sequestration funded by the government, things like that, I'm for all of those things. But right now, there's not that much political incentive to be for unless you're like on the far left, because otherwise no one else's voters really vote on this. So what you're going to need, like I have a 15-year-old and a 12-year-old, and my daughter is a member of XR and Zero Hour and other climate groups, and she's really engaged in the movement. I think she's typical of her generation of Gen Z, But Gen Z has to vote not at 12% in primary turnout, which is what it typically is. They've got to get it to 50, 60, 70%. If they are, then all of a sudden you better believe that the political incentives for city council members, state legislators, members of Congress, U.S. senators, governors, the president, whoever, will shift. And then all of a sudden passing a carbon tax isn't so hard after all. So Mm -hmm. it's really – they can solve the vast majority of these problems, but they're only going to do so if we make it in their political interest. Mm-hmm. Does that make uh, sense? I, it does. Can I uh, pitch you an idea that I've been riffing yeah, on? Yeah, please. Sure. Tangential to what you just talked about, the carbon tax, right? So the, the ethos or the broader intention of a carbon tax is to help effectively nearshore, reshore American manufacturing. Why don't political operatives rebrand as buying local or buy America, right? That's something that red states can get behind. Everyone yeah. wants their constituents to produce and buy local. And right. the progressive agenda, it's pretty aligned to the progressive agenda. It's if you produce locally, then your footprints, you reduce yeah, by 100, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yes. Sure. So, so uh, you're, you're right. It, it's funny. There is this cognitive dissonance. It's a great point that you just made because politically, because the left does embrace climate change as the number one problem that we need to deal with from an existential standpoint, I don't think any other than the threat of nuclear annihilation, I don't know that anything else could even compete with climate in terms of the priority list. But there is also almost it's uncool to be patriotic. It's uncool to be pro-American. You had someone from the New York Times at board on MSNBC the other day talking about how she was disturbed by the sight of so many American flags. So the left, where they should care a lot about climate and therefore a carbon tax makes sense for their agenda. And the real benefit of carbon tax is that not only does it reduce emissions, but it really stimulates the local economy. They don't do it because it's not cool to be patriotic. On the right, where they are patriotic and they do believe in manufacturing, they're told they can't believe in climate change. So as a result, mm-hmm. a carbon tax to them is like, taxes are bad and ca- climate change is a hoax and therefore doing something to solve it doesn't make any sense. So it, everything is totally misaligned and we've got to realign it. But if you think about it, the reason why 
these are the these are the, the rationales for it is that hang on one second. Someone keeps calling yeah. my daughter's at great adv- at Six Flags. <laughs> I just want to make sure that yeah, it's no not no someone problem. from Six Flags calling to uh, no problem. No problem. If you ever do this, I'm going to type the number into Google and make sure Six Flags did not come up here. She and her boyfriend went by themselves today. It does not look like Six Flags, so I think we're we are good to continue. Sorry, sorry, I was getting distracted. Dad alert! Um, Dad alert! Yeah, exactly. I've been, tracking, I've been tracking her on my phone all day. Um, <laughs> so anyway, the, the the point is this: right now, all of the incentives are skewed in the wrong direction. Right. So if you are a Democrat running for office. The only election that matters is your primary because of gerrymandering. The vast majority of general elections are already predetermined. So you care about that 10, 12, 15 percent of people who vote in your primary who, if you're a Democrat, the good news is they believe in climate change and want to fix it. The bad news is the notion of being buying American, supporting our country is considered antithetical. On the right, same thing because of gerrymandering or a Republican member of Congress or Republican state senator or whatever it is, they just have to win the primary to get reelected, turn out to 10%, 15%. And among those people on the furthest, they may really support the idea of manufacturing more in America, but they don't support the idea of, of, of climate change in the first place. So as a result, hang on, you can edit this, right? Yeah, yeah. Turned out it was sweet green trying to bring my food to me, not my daughter. Yeah, or you can leave all this in if it's anyway. So the problem is all of the incentives and inputs are misaligned, and as a result, what should be logical policy outputs, which is the right should love the idea of a carbon tax which drives manufacturing back into U.S. domain, they can't do it because the the narrow group of people who vote in a primary don't represent the, the greater whole, and that's mm-hmm. true by the way on climate. It's true on guns we discussed. Take immigration. Most people don't think that you should deport every person who's here illegally. And most people don't think you should have open borders where anyone can just walk in whenever they want. That's 70% of the electorate. But 15% of the left would say open borders and keep everyone here. 15% of the right would say never let anyone in, deport everyone. But because those two 15% vote in primaries and no one else does, their view is determinative. We're never going to ultimately have solutions on guns or climate or health care or education, or anything else, unless the mainstream are voting in the elections that actually matter, that's only going to happen if voting upticks by from 10, 15% to 40, 50, 60%, which will only happen through mobile voting, which is why I'm putting the vast majority of my money and, and, and resources um, into making mobile voting happen. So if you, last point, if you're listening to this podcast because you care about climate change, the best way to solve climate change is to make mobile voting happen. Because then all the incentives. Lie. I want to get into that note. I'd like to pitch you another idea. Yeah. This is as Bradley Tuss, the VC. So I, my business partner and I have been incubating an idea for a couple months now. And the broader notion is Alibaba for Mexico. Right. So okay. we are a producer of uh, a wide breadth of games. We produce millions of games every year, primarily manufactured out of China. And the problem with this as the climate enthusiast is, of course, you either air freighting a ton of weight cross ocean or you're sea freighting it, which comes with its own set of challenges. The reason why historically most producers have overlooked Latin America as a production option is you have you don't have price parity, right? So like it costs more to produce. 
There's also broader political instability narratives. And what we've been exploring over the last few months is whether or not those two points are still true. And the the conclusion that we made thus far in a very in a, in a meaningful number of categories of commerce, such as apparel, jewelry, you can produce in Mexico at roughly the same cost of goods as China. But now you can it's effectively the 51st state in the United States. You truck it right over the border. Yep. You get to your customers at a fraction of the time. And so I would argue in almost every single way, Mexico becomes a more economically interesting opportunity than China and way lower footprint, apples to apples. So that is the idea. Alibaba for Mexico. So amazingly, my wife and I just had a very similar conversation. So I was reading a a book called The Fish That Ate the Whale. It was about the, the history of United Fruit which was a banana company basically in the U.S., and this is where the term banana republic comes from, had so much dominance uh, in Central America that they would literally pick who, the, who, who was in charge of the country. They would just overthrow the leader if, if they felt that they weren't getting favorable tax treatment or whatever it was. My wife is an art historian, and she's a Latin American modernist. So she studies the 20th century Latin America. And I said to her, when U.S. manufacturing shifted abroad – why did it go to Asia and not to Latin America? Because in theory, it really could have gone in either direction or both. And some did go to Mexico, but you know, Paraguay or Bolivia or Uruguay, whatever. No, not really. Because labor ought to be just as cheap there as it is in Asia. And her, her answer was you had less government stability. So it was harder for people to feel confident or even know who their business partners would be. You have tremendous, as a result, currency inflation and deflation. So that makes the local economy tough to work with. And also, you just, you, I think there's some level of those, I don't know if it's racism, but there was just a view that it would be easier and better to make things in Asia than it was in Latin America. But basically, along with saying none of that needs to be the case, because the truth is, there's no real reason why Latin America couldn't be as productive in manufacturing as Asia. And you would have shipping costs that would be exponentially smaller, especially if it's a place like Mexico. I guess once you're down in Patagonia, it becomes pretty far. But you know, Mexico to Texas could be a, literally a five-minute drive, depending on where you're going. I think that's absolutely right. I think that's what, in some ways, NAFTA was meant to produce. And I think it has on some level. But you know, when NAFTA happened in, what, the mid-90s, there wasn't really the awareness of climate change like there was today. So the the externality of shipping in terms of not just the physical, the economic cost, but the environmental cost wasn't really an issue 25 years ago. People weren't really thinking mm-hmm. about it. Now it is a real world issue where me as a consumer, I am more likely to buy something if I believe that the environmental externalities of producing it are lower. Electric car, stuff like that. Yeah, I think that it lines up really well in terms of the, the the cultural priorities among consumers in the U.S. and the economic priorities of manufacturing and shipping start to line up. So you see some of this already now with fair trade and things like that, but it's all niche products that are very expensive. So the, your mm-hmm. question is, could you do this at scale for the masses? And that's mm-hmm. effectively what Alibaba does in China. It's really interesting. I'd, I'd love to talk more about it. Yeah. It, it just If you go to the most basic premise of what inspired the problem. It's so easy to produce anything in China. You go to Alibaba.com, you type in whatever product you want to get made and you get it personalized to your needs. If you try to do that same workflow in Mexico, you say, 
Make t-shirt in Mexico. Make t-shirt in Mexican supplier. Google it. Zero results. It will be impulsive, impossible to solve that problem. So there is a very big overlooked opportunity in Mexico, yeah. I believe. Now you do have the problem of at least the current political leadership in Mexico tends to be very anti-business. Lopez Obrador sees himself as sort of AOC of Mexico. And whether he would want to embrace this, I'm not sure. But even if he wouldn't, Mexico is divided up into states like the U.S. is. So you have different mm-hmm. governors who I think are very pro-business and pro-manufacturing. And there's no reason why in parts of the country that are already really actively uh, producing goods that you couldn't expand it to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not easy what you're describing at all. There are things I invest in where it's, it's going to work. You turn this thing on, me- therapy delivered d- digitally to people instead of schlepping to your psychiatrist's office, right? Yes, it's not that hard technically to do. Not surprising that once you create an appealing network, people are going to join it. You're describing is really hard. But it could have a massive impact on reducing shipping, kind of the both the, the cost financially and the cost environmentally, mm-hmm. which is one of the major drivers of climate change. Yeah, I want to circle back to Tusk Ventures. Sure. Um, you've made quite a few very smart investments, Coinbase, Row, Lemonade. But it's interesting to think about how sustainability fits into Tusk Ventures thesis. You made a recent investment in Sunday. So maybe to the extent that you want to share, how does sustainability fit the broader thinking at Tusk Ventures and what's getting your wheels turning as it pertains to to climate opportunities? So so we're always looking at, is there a company that can be incredibly disruptive and incredibly successful, but for regulatory restrictions or but for a giant incumbent trans interest that's not going to want the competition and they're going to throw up all these roadblocks via government and politics. That's what, so with Sunday, for example, Sunday is a organic fertilizer company, lawn care. And if you look at like Roundup and these other products, they're incredibly toxic, right? There was this massive $2 billion judgment against Bayer for Roundup. Our view was, here's an opportunity to, to deliver a better product to consumers. And the regulatory issues were twofold. One, the really big players in the industry, the Scots of, of, of the industry, are not going to want the competition. So they're going to try to come up with ways to screw with Sunday. And two, on the positive side, what if you actually, communities were to pass mandates saying you can only use organic fertilizer here. We don't want fertilizer being used that pollutes our water, that poisons our wildlife, poisons local dogs, it's harmful to kids and people playing on the lawn. So that starts in the places that you would expect, the Austins and Portlands of the world. Um, But I think ultimately, I don't think anyone particularly wants to be inhaling and and drinking toxic fumes and and pollutants. To me, there was an opportunity both proactively and reactively to really drive this company. And that's why we invested. We led their Series A and Jordan, my partner, sits on their board. Yeah, so it's opportunities like that where there's something like we looked at a company called Carbon Technologies and it ended up being too expensive for our thesis. But what they needed was effectively every – they build these sequestration plants that literally suck CO2 out of the atmosphere and store it underground. Every plant costs $500 million to build. So you're talking – they needed like – a trillion dollars or something like that to be able to build this at enough scale to actually remove enough carbon from the environment. And I was like, 
okay, could you run a campaign to generate a trillion dollars in public financing for this? And pre-COVID, you would have said, no way, nothing can ever be a trillion dollars. But now we've passed multiple plans that are a trillion dollars or more. And while we didn't end up investing in that company or working with them, something like that to me is really interesting, which is here's a really audacious goal. But if you do the politics right, you can achieve it. And so, yeah, so to me, that that's how we think about sustainability and climate in the context of our investment thesis. But it's not even, we're not an ESG fund. We're not a, an energy fund. We're looking to make a lot of money every single deal we do. And we think some deals around sustainability can very much give us a 10x. So it's, it's a question of just does it fit the underlying thesis of if you get the politics, can this country have, can this company have exponential growth? That is so fascinating. If you think about like how, if I'm a founder and I'm exploring capital partners, right? You have everyone touts the set of services they bring to the table. And this one to me is the most compelling one I've heard. Because if you think about that type of lever with Sunday specifically, if you are able to help uh, move the needle on some type of mandate across even just counties, right? You can start county by county. That is an amazing opportunity for that company. And so is that one of the filters you look through? You, you, yeah, a company absolutely. comes to you. That's, that's, look, the reason why both a company, so the good news is in my little weird niche corner of venture capital, I've got a monopoly. We're the only fund that does what we do. If we invest in you, you then get my political team who will handle your regulatory issues, your political issues, your media issues, and we do it for free. That's part of what you get by letting us invest. These are things that most people pay us $100,000 a month for on the consulting side. We don't lose a lot of deals because if you are in a highly regulated industry and you're worried about this stuff, you need us. And therefore, you try to make sure that we're, we get an allocation in your round, whether we're leading the deal or co-investing depends on the deal. And if you don't need us, then the truth is there's no reason to give us an allocation because we don't really add any value. But you know, the vast majority of companies are either regulated by government directly or indirectly because if you do anything that touches a consumer, it's automatically regulated in some way. So yeah, I think that we've got um, a niche that really differentiates us from any other venture fund. The upside, our returns are, are really good. We're in a quiet period right now because we're in fundraising, so I can't talk about the numbers, but, but I'm quite happy with them. The downside is it is harder for me to raise money than probably other funds because I'm doing something that is so weird and different than most funds that LPs, when they come to the meeting with their checklist and they need to check off five boxes in order to give you an, uh, give you capital, oftentimes I don't check three of the five, but then I check six others that aren't even on their list. And it's like, what do we do with this guy, right? Now, look, we've succeeded. We've raised money. We're obviously investing out of our third fund. But that's the part that for me is always the hardest, which is we're so unconventional in terms of, of how we do venture that it is uh, always a challenge to get people who are used to looking at things one way to instead look at it our way. That is incredibly interesting. Uh, I'm curious if y'all have open sourced this, but do you have a, a request for startups? Are you saying, hey, yeah, please. we're yeah, interested so we, in this? Yeah. For sure. So Seed and Series A is our sweet spot. The smallest check we'll typically write is about a million dollars. The biggest check we write is about $7 million. We will lead a deal or we will co-invest in a deal. And if you have a company that you think can be incredibly scalable and really grow, and you are worried about a particular regulatory issue or roadblock, or sometimes it's that you think, Oh, if we could cr- create this new mandate, like requiring you know community counties to only use organic fertilizer, then all of a sudden we can just 
grow really fast. That's what we're looking for. So just, yeah, you know, DM me or send me an email, whatever it is, and we would be happy. To- Before we go into some of the rapid fire, the last thing I want to touch on inside of this kind of broader venture universe is the SPAC. You just announced yeah. the IG acquisition core with a focus on mm-hmm. leisure, gaming, and hospitality. Why is that the strike zone? So a few reasons. One, I just personally find the gambling sector really interesting, and I've done a lot of work in it over the years. So when I was deputy governor in Illinois, I oversaw the state lottery and the state gaming board. I spent a year and a half on Wall Street, Lehman Brothers, creating and running the first group on Wall Street to privatize state lotteries. We ran the RFP process to build the first casino in New York City out at Aqueduct Racetrack. We ran all these campaigns for FanDuel to legalize daily fantasy sports betting. So I have a deep interest in history in the regulatory aspects of gaming. And I have a thesis along my partner, Christian, which is every casino these days, whether it's the fanciest one on the strip or the shittiest riverboat. Can I curse on here? Is that okay? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah okay. Um, they're all variations on the same theme, which is it's all red carpet and gold plating and wheel of fortune slot machines. And they're all the same thing. And you have 140 million people in this country that are either millennial or Gen Z. And it's not that they don't like to gamble, but they have different interests. And what if you had a casino or a digital platform that was focused on sports betting, daily fantasy sports? What if the activities, instead of being sunning yourself at the pool, were axe throwing or soul cycle pop-ups? Like, what if you built properties, whether it's digitally or physically, aimed at this giant new generation of people who very well may want to gamble, but they've got their own way that they view the world. And right now, no one's doing that. So we raised the the money in an IPO on the NASDAQ with the idea of deploying it into the gaming sector in a way that really takes advantage of that thesis. And that's what we're working on right now. That's so fucking cool. You were on CNBC three months ago talking about Roblox. Mm -hmm. And I found your perspective interesting because in many ways it was informed by your children yes you talk to them they are the users or their peers are the users and that's what you use to inform your worldview about the opportunity yeah yeah literally i remember i asked my son who's 12 and is totally a gamer what do you think of roadblocks and the answer was that's for third graders he's in the Mm -hmm. sixth grade and that was what i went on national tv and said it's a great business here's who it's for uh and the, the, the host found that mildly entertaining yeah (laughs) <laughs> I still find it entertaining. I, I have a, another pitch for you, and I would sure. just love to hear your, your bullish or bearish take. Yep. Roblox, Fortnite, Animal Crossing, etc. Yep. Have widened their core use case from come here and kill things or build things to come here and hang out with your friends and explore. Yeah, totally. And you're already seeing opportunities that are exploiting this metaverse, right? Concerts taking place, interviews taking place. I believe that there is an opportunity to deliver mental health services inside of gaming environments. My youngest brother just lives inside of Minecraft. That's all he does with his friends. And I remember when my parents got divorced, my mom said, hey, you you and your sister have to go to a family therapist. I was okay with it, but my sister... Oh my gosh, it was terrible because you're going to some strange building, meeting a stranger for the first time. And now you're asking this young girl or me as well to divulge your deepest insecurities. And so the advantage of delivering mental health services inside of gaming environments is A, you meet the child where they're most comfortable. So you have child buy-in. That's the biggest issue. If you want someone to opt into therapy, 
got to meet them where they're comfortable. And two, because you can check that off, imagine a therapist going in, building rapport, gaining the trust from said individual. And now for meetings two through X, sure, you can take that off platform. You can do some type of telehealth, right? Over, over video. You can meet them in person. But as the first icebreaking session at minimum, I think that gaming environments are this unique opportunity, maybe even just for family health, but for mental but health meet, services to, more broadly. To, to, to meet people where they are. Yeah. yeah. That, that Look, so for, finally, first of all, the premise, I totally agree with. If you ask my son, he's been to a Travis Scott concert. Now, he went to it on Fortnite. Like, he didn't actually go to Madison Square Garden or something like that. But he really thinks he did, right? Or mm-hmm. my daughter, who just finished the ninth grade, she and her friends hang out on Minecraft. It, it's really not a game. It's a platform. Now, look, I think once the, vet, the once COVID is totally done, hopefully kids will be able to spend more time together in person and less time online. But the online communities aren't going away, right, at all, even if in-person takes a little more precedence again. They're, they're hanging out. And you're right. My daughter hangs out on Minecraft. I'll kind of she's 15 so she never really wants to talk to us so i'll tentatively knock on her door and hope i don't get yelled at and say what are you up to and it's usually it's to me she's not doing her homework or whatever it's, i'm with on minecraft and that's what they're doing so they're there so i totally with you on that because i, I live this right i see it so then the question is what could you sell them or do with them from that platform that they would be receptive to would it be helpful to them and that the game itself would be comfortable with. Because I think mm-hmm. games are always looking for ways to generate affiliate revenue. That's that's basically how they make their money most of the time. Mm-hmm. But it's got to be on brand. So the question is, would Minecraft find mental health or family health to be on brand? I, I don't know. It's a good question. But the notion of fi- – I'll, I'll give you to, – to bring it back to mobile voting for a second. We have a guy in our team, Evan, who really spends all of his time just on TikTok – Instagram, Twitter, and other platforms building the case for mobile voting to Gen Z. And that's all I really want him to do is just I, – because I, I can build the technology. I can convince election officials to give it a try. But the status quo of everyone in power now is going to resist it because it means they'll have less power. And I need an entire generation to demand it to break through. Otherwise, I'm going to fail. And so we're out there right now marketing the idea – to Gen Z over those platforms. It never even occurred to me that like, maybe we should be on Minecraft. Maybe we should be on Fortnite. And uh, so, yeah, it's a fascinating concept. We're investors in a company called Alma, which is an online mental health company that's doing incredibly well. It has skyrocketed since COVID. And so, look, I'm a deep believer in mental health services. I go to therapy every week and really excited about our role in Alma. We led their series A. Uh, we sit on the board. And so combining those things is, is really interesting. The devil's always in the, the details on this stuff. But, yeah, mm-hmm. conceptually, it, it makes sense. Cool. We'll add Mexibaba and – Mental health go. services to our to our revisit come, list. Come, come to the office. We'll talk about it. <laughs> I want to touch on one project that you've pioneered that is in your philanthropic bucket. It's the yeah. Gotham Book Prize. Yeah. Um, what is it and why did you start it? Started – so my friend Howard and I who are just huge readers. Like I, like I said, I'm opening a bookstore – in 2020, I tried to read 100 books in a year. I, I didn't succeed. I got close enough to learn that it's a bad idea to try to read 100 books in a year. It becomes <laughs> overly disruptive for the rest of your life. I got to 89. But so Howard and I had just noted that even though so many books are either set in New York City or about New York City, there's no prize that recognizes the best book every year 
that's about or set in New York City. And if you think about it, I'm going to take kind of a step to 50,000 feet here, so hopefully this makes sense. There are two New Yorks, right? There's the physical New York that you and I live in, and that's the streets, the subways, the parks, the schools, and the actual conditions. What we were talking about at the beginning of this podcast about Yang and the mayor and the role of the mayor from an operational perspective, that's that New York, right? But then there's another New York that lives in movies and TV shows and songs and podcasts and books that the rest of the world sees, and that's the New York that has this pull on people, now you and I are both from here, but millions and millions of people who are, live in New York City are not from here, but they came from somewhere else in the world or somewhere else in the U.S. and said, that's where I need to be because they recognize New York from these other sources and they say, that's who I am. And they feel very compelled to come here. And they're what, ma- what makes New York so great. And so when COVID hit, my concern was we know that the physical New York is going to really suffer a little bit because of the pandemic. 600,000 jobs were lost. A lot of people lost their lives. It's going to take a while to recover. Right now, we're not dealing with massive budget deficits because of the federal bailout, but eventually we will be. And so the, the New York that you and I live in is going to be a, a little rough for a little while. But as long as you maintain that mystique of New York in other forms uh, of media in books or film or TV or whatever it is, it's always going to pull the most talented, ambitious, interesting people to our city. And as long as they keep coming here, we're going to be okay. The reason why New York didn't fall apart when manufacturing left the U.S., and New York took a hit from it, but didn't fall apart completely, is we're the white collar capital of the U.S., if not the world. So we're, we're kind of the intellectual capital of the world in many ways, but that requires people, really smart, talented people coming here. And so my thought was, and Howard's thought was, if we could have a, a prize that incentivized people to write about New York, keep that mystique going, that would help the city get through this difficult crisis. So we created the Gotham Book Prize recruited a great jury of, of writers and, and historians and others on it. If you go to GothamBookPrize.org, you can see the whole jury on there. Um, we awarded the first prize to a book called Deacon King Kong by James McBride. Fantastic novel. Really loved it. Highly recommend it. We're now accepting submissions for uh, the next prize. And uh, if you go on that website and you've got a book about New York that has to be published in, in this year that you think we should be considering, just uh, you, you, you can nominate something. Hell yeah. All right. We're going to move into rapid fire. Sure. And I didn't have this on the list, but since you inspired me, 89 book, which one impacted you most? Which is one that you would recommend to- So I'll, I'll stick with Deacon King Kong because I loved it and it won the Gotham Book Prize. So the jury loved it too. I read mainly fiction. I would say three quarters of my reading is fiction. And I just, I love novels and all kinds of novels. I'll read fairly- complex, dense novels, and I'll read Chiclet. It's just, just if it's good, I like it. And so I just tear through books. There's a website called bookshop.org. that's like Amazon for books, but not, it's not nearly as good, but all of the books are bought from local indie bookstores. So I like it. And now that I'm opening up an indie bookstore, I especially like it. And so I basically just, anytime that I see a book that looks vaguely interesting, I go on bookshop.org, I order it. So if I read 89 books last year, I probably bought 225 or something like that. And probably three quarters physical, a quarter digital. I like to have a book or two that I'm reading on my phone. But ultimately, I, I pref- it's nice if I'm sitting at home and reading 
to not be looking at a screen because I look at a screen all day for everything else that I do. And yeah, so I thought Deacon King Kong was just sort of, it celebrated what makes New York weird and wonderful in a way that a, a lot of books aren't able to actually capture. But there were so many books, you again in Kings County and The City We Became and others that were also finalists that I really loved. And yeah, and though this year, interestingly, I've read a lot of good books, but Howard and I were talking about this the other day, Neither of us have yet read anything that's an obvious Gotham Book Prize winner. So we haven't found that book yet. We, last time we texted about the, uh, this book called Empire of Pain, which is about the, the Sackler family and the rise of OxyContin. It's set in New York because it happened in real life in New York. It's not really a book about New York, so I don't think it's mm-hmm. going to qualify, but it happens to be an excellent book. Yeah, but if, if people are reading books that were recently published about New York or set in New York that you want to recommend, pl- please go on the Gotham Book Prize website and, and let me know because, one, we'd love to check it out for the prize, but two, I'm just always looking for good stuff to read. I listened to a bunch of your episodes at Fire. You talked about Katera, and I remember it was like, is it Katera or Katera? So did we <laughs> leave that, that was... in? We <laughs> left it in? You know, we recorded it because I don't. I record the podcast, but then I'm not involved in anything that happens after that. And I usually don't even listen to my own podcast because I already know what I said when I got other things to do. So we were – I was – we were debating that on the podcast and I was like, I assume they're going to edit this out, but I guess. But my question for you is, of all the guests you've had on the show, yeah. which one surprised you the most? Such a good question. So I am going to say only because it, it's a thesis and I just had coffee with her right before this morning. Sally Sussman, who runs comms and GR and all kinds of huge parts of Pfizer. And the reason why is – In interviewing Sally, it hit me that here's this industry that we all love to hate, right? Politicians beat up on pharma like nothing else, and they're ripping off the consumers, and they're price gouging, and all this stuff. And then here they are. They literally saved the world by developing the vaccine for COVID, right, where the world was entirely shut down. They saved it. And what she was able to explain to me was, look, here's our process for R&D. And for every one drug that succeeds, 10 or 20 fail, but they still might cost us a billion dollars in research to get to the point where they fail. And I really thought about it in a totally different way because the only reason they were able to develop a vaccine for COVID in such a short period of time is because they have this existing infrastructure already. And I think I had a typical politician's view of like pharma bad. And then as I really started thinking about it and listening to her, it really changed my perspective on it. And I think in many ways, look, while there, there still could be reform in the, in, in the drug industry, at the same time, the benefits and the costs have to add up. And in this case, it really changed my thinking about that sector. I love that. Uh, the last question I end this in every interview, it's around yeah. this notion of the idea graveyard. What is one idea that you'd love to work on if you had the time to do, but for now is just rotting away in your idea graveyard? All right. So I, luckily, my job is to come up with ideas and to make them happen. So I have an infrastructure where I have, I like the tele-religion platform, for example, or we're incubating an esports betting platform right now. They actually happen where they become a SPAC or something <laughs> like that. So luckily, uh, not too much, but, but I want to touch, go back to Sunday because I had this idea of Coulter's, our, Coulter Lewis, our CEO, and I had this crazy idea for him that he's way too logical to do, but I still think could work, which is, so you know, there's the sex offender registry that like when a pervert gets let out of jail, they have to register to tell their neighbors, whatever else. What if you created the dirty lawn registry and you, but not only if you suspect that someone is using pollutants in their lawn, you can report them and it is publicly listed and they're on there until they can disprove that they're using 
bad fertilizer. Stigma and shame is one of the most powerful emotions in, in, in humanity. And people, I think, would go to incredible lengths not to be put on the dirty fertilizer list. And it would create a total suburban chaos. I get that. But I really do think that if you created this registry of lawn polluters, people would go out of their way to use Sunday or other organic products instead. It would really help the business and it would really improve the quality of our water supply and it would be safer for wildlife and for communities and everything else. He hasn't done it yet. He has been so successful with this company that he's never needed to do something crazy like this. But I still pitch it, repitch it to him every once Badly. This is an amazing idea. We've had Coulter on twice. And we're planning right, so, the third one now. Right, so I when you have Coulter on, you pitch it to him. All right. But he, yeah, he's not listening to me on it. So, And we're on the board. But he's done this listening. is a fantastic yeah. idea. Fantastic idea. And not incredibly challenging. It's decentralized. No. So like people yeah. can anonymously report. Other yeah. people can upvote it if they've seen, if they can yeah. verify it. Yeah. I mean, it's this is a very good idea. Yeah, and then there's um, a pr- proof of stake to prove that you're not. You're just taking a little bit from the, the, the crypto world. But yeah, and this is – of all the things we're working on from a, a technical standpoint, I assume someone on my team could build this in an afternoon. Mm-hmm. So it's just a question of – I think for Coulter, it's, he's doing so well. There's no reason to distract from the underlying mission yeah. right now. That's yeah. great. We're, as one of his lead ambassadors, we're thrilled about that. But yeah, I do. I still think it could work though. So if you pitch it to him. Before I let you go, I, I just want to hear just the brief on tele-religion. It's a very attention-grabbing keyword. So what does yeah. that mean? So what does that entail? So basically, I'll, I'll give you the – we haven't launched it publicly yet. We're, we just started beta testing this week actually. But I was – so I wake up pretty early. And one morning, pre-COVID, I was up. I hadn't had coffee yet. I was looking at my emails. I had this terrible habit. The first thing I do is look at my phone. And there was an email from a guy on my team, Bob Greenlee. And it was about First Amendment exemptions for selling peyote online. So we um, have been looking at the psychedelic drug space. Uh, it's potentially area of investment because one, I believe drugs should be legal. And two, I think it's potentially a, one day could be a pretty big market. Um, we haven't made any investments in it yet, but, but we look at it. And what he was saying was, I wonder if in some religions, peyote is part of their actual religious practice. And so in that case, couldn't they have a legal right to use it? And therefore, could that be applied to distribution of it? Somehow I misread his email and just read tele-religion. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I'm thinking about it. And you have a a TAM of six and a half billion people. Something like 84% of the world's inhabitants identify with some sort of organized religion. And yet... No one has attempted to digitize religion yet. I can't even say the word digitize. No one has attempted to do this yet. And I think the reason why is the tech world is totally secular and agnostic. The religious world you know, is intimidated by technology. And as a result, the crossover doesn't really exist. So my question to my team was, could we create this? We spent about eight months diligencing it. COVID hits. All of a sudden, everyone is starting to live stream their sermons or whatever else because you can't go to church or synagogue or wherever you might go to. And and we started building companies. So hired a, a great CEO named John Mendez, and John built a team, and we've got a product in beta right now. And my hope is that by the fall, it could be on the App Store. That is incredible. I have a question for you. Yeah. And we can cut this out after, but I'm curious. So Firewall. Yeah. What is the motive for doing Firewall? 
It's a great question that I ask our team all the time. So we don't take ads, nor do we have even enough listenership that, that people would want to place ads. So we do it for a few reasons. One is it's a platform for me. I've got lots of different points of view. And now we're doing two episodes a week. One of them is, is uh, Hugo interviewing me. And then one is me interviewing someone else. So it's a platform for my ideas, number one. Number two, it is a way to access people because I think as, as you've learned also, people love being podcast guests. So you can get access to all kinds of people through the vein of having them on a podcast, you otherwise might not might normally not be able to reach them. Um, so it's useful for that. And then third, for what I do in venture, we had two challenges. One was convincing the venture world that we should exist. So that was LPs for funding our fund and then making startups realize that, hey, we're a real value add. But it's also then just creating the market for it itself because there wasn't. So I have to spend a huge amount of my time still out there in the public talking about this stuff because I, without that, people don't even know that there is a kind of venture capital focused on solving regulatory problems. So mm-hmm. my column, my podcast, my book, all the TV appearances I do on CNBC, coming on other people's podcasts, all of this stuff is designed to effectively build and create the market for Tusk Ventures to allow us to exist and succeed. At some point, hopefully I will have succeeded and it won't take me proselytizing all the time. But then even if, if it's not that, it's mobile voting or tele-religion or it's, it's esports betting. There's always some idea that I'm interested in that hasn't caught on yet and I'm trying to get it into the mainstream. And so for me, Having that platform is really helpful for that regard. But it is a lot of work. And one thing about the bookstore I should have mentioned, it's also a podcast studio. And I think it's going to be the first podcast studio where anyone can come use the facilities for free. So if you sign up for it uh, and you have a podcast you want to do, you can come use our facilities and we will not charge you anything for it. And it's free to charge. The bookstore is called P&T Knitwear. Our hope is to open up in October, an orchard between Houston and Revington. And you'll be able to go online soon and, and, and book space for your own podcast if you want. This is incredible. Bradley, I think that you are in many ways one of the most, even despite you getting on Bit Network, CNBC, the most underheard thinkers, at least in the yeah. podcast circuit. I, I don't understand why Firewall isn't a top pod. This has been one of the most fun conversations I've had in a long time. We're about to hit episode 100. I've done a lot of these. Wow. Congrats, and yeah. I think... That's something that you and I should do. I'm going to pitch you another idea right now. Okay. Low, no, no commitment. I think that there is a big content opportunity in just doing idea porn where we bring three to four ideas to the table and we pitch them, we talk about them, we give our bullish or bearish takes. That's it. All the builders, all the thinkers that want inspiration around that's interesting. Uh, problems to explore, how to solve them, how we think about them. That's yeah. it. My first That's million is the only one yeah. that exists right now. Sean huh. Purr and uh, or Sam Parr and Sham Purr from The Hustle, just acquired by HubSpot. Yeah. They're they're about to hit a month a uh, million monthly listeners. Wow. There's a I think a big opportunity, and I think you yeah, are so one of the most interesting. It. Cool. Um, all right. Anyways, Bradley, right. I'm gonna roll. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, this was great. And any then, final and, call to actions? GoMobileVoting.org, please check it out. We need your support. The only way to change the world on climate and everything else is to change the inputs and incentives for politicians, and this is how we do it. So, by the way, and I'm paying for it, so I'm not even asking for money. I just want people to know about it and support it. So, and then Peter, separately, you edit this out, but you have my email. It's always probably uh, yes. Shoot me a note. We'll, let's get together and talk about all this other stuff. Cool. Thank you, Bradley. Hey there. You made it to the outro. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you're new here, welcome. 
If you're a longtime listener, thank you so much. We're actively casting for new guests on our show. So if you have a rock star founder or company in mind that's working on something cool, message me on Instagram at Peter A. Levin or email us, hello at ingothands.us. Thank you so much again and look forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday.